Welcome to our newest adventure for first responder wellness. No one fights alone. In-depth conversations about mental health and culture in the first responder space. We're joined by your co-hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard. Austin, my friend, we're back once again doing another uh, doing another No One Fights Alone podcast. How you doing, buddy? Doing good, man. I got our new uh, new office space that will turn uh, be turned into our studio one of these days to to help sell our merch and everything. So it's it's nice. And to dude, be I see here. the merchandise on your physical body right now. I'm envious. I don't have mine yet. I hear it's in the mail. Well, our shirts do not look as good as our guest shirts i will tell you Buddy, that much today so their yes. shirts are badass they're and they're twinsian <laughs> like it's it's actually a little weird but i like it it's a uh, it's uh so cool <laughs> let me tell you i'm excited about today's podcast because we have another couple on this is going to be a little bit of a relationship talk because these two are are uh winning in life having gone through some crazy shit and uh Without any hesitation any longer, I'm going to introduce our guests, Meg Hawkins and Kevin Provo. Eric, sorry, Eric Provo. Welcome to the No One Fights Alone podcast. Well, thank you for thank having you. us. Thank you very much. I uh, I love it. So so a little bit of background on uh, Meg: twenty years in law enforcement, twenty years plus in law enforcement. Eric, twenty year uh, military special ops community, sixteen year firefighter, paramedic, national presenters. Uh, and the creators, uh, founders of Making Everything Good, Meg, uh, that does fantastic, found fantastic work in the uh, recovery community of helping people uh, get the help they need. Uh, so excited to have you guys on. We are excited to be here. We can't wait to talk about Meg and uh, our relationship. <laughs> and, and the road that's gotten us there has definitely <laughs> not been a, uh, a smooth road. A lot of bumps in it. Yeah, that's I'm excited for this one personally, just because I know a little bit of background on you guys and just, you know, what you've been through and then also how amazing Meg is um, the nonprofit that you guys have created. But, you know, what I really want to start off with is the relationship issue is massive. We all know divorce rates. We've gone over that so many times in this podcast. We've gone over the issues that couples face. And so I really want to open the floor to you and you know, just like you would be presenting at cops or any of those type of things. Tell us a little bit about kind of, you know, what your journey has been. So, um, you know, like we talked about, I had 20 years in the military, uh, active duty, special operations community. And I was in during the war starting in Af Afghanistan and Iraq. I retired in 2007, 2002 timeframe, 2003, I was exposed to a lot of um, events that happened overseas. I started struggling um, mentally and I didn't know what was going on. Uh, it was kind of mentioned to me maybe that I had post-traumatic stress. I kind of blew it off, said what I was feeling, what I was going through was normal, normal behavior for someone that had been, seen combat and was still on active duty. And so I just kind of buried it. The other thing was too, being on active duty, doing the work I was doing, the units I was involved with, I was afraid to say anything, fearing that I would lose my security clearance. I would get kicked out of the unit, potentially get kicked out of the military. So I didn't say anything and I just struggled, kept my head down and moved forward. Like I said, I retired in 2007 and went into the fire service and still wasn't getting help, wasn't talking to anybody about it. And I went through periods of being very angry, aggressive. And on average, I slept about two hours a night. It wasn't until I met Meg that um, someone, you know, said, hey, there's something going on. 
And, and that was the, what led down the road to me eventually getting help. But by the, by the time I met Meg, I had 10 plus years of struggling with post-traumatic stress. Yeah. Um, I mean, his signs and symptoms were exactly what the DSM and everybody else says about PTSD. Um, I'm sorry. I still say PTSD. It's just the way it is in the DSM five. So that's how I categorize it. Um, not trying to be rude to anybody. Um, but he was, you know, isolating, you know, irritable all the time, avoided certain places, um, just angry, would pop off in a matter of a second, didn't sleep, had nightmares, night terrors. Um, I would essentially sometimes have to um, hold him back from getting into a physical altercation with other individuals. Um, I mean, to say that's just some of the symptoms that we dealt with. And I finally said, you know, hey, you know, it's, I think you need some help. And he wouldn't. He, you know, typical guy, I'm fine. Um, everything's fine. And, you know, here I am, you know, and I, uh, the fun, not the funny thing, but the, he never told me what happened in the military until about two, three, four years into our marriage. And we were mm-hmm. married. We were engaged in two months. We got, we JP'd it in six months and then we had our wedding. Um, no, we JP'd it in four months. I can't remember, but we got married in like less than a year of meeting each other. Now we were older, you know, 34 and and 44. So it wasn't just like, you know, puppy love or anything. We knew it just was what it was. And being in our jobs, we didn't, we didn't want to wait just in case something were to happen. But anyway, to get back on the story, um, I just totally forgot what I was saying. Well, let me, let me, let me dive in here. Let me, let me back up a little bit. Cause I think there's some interesting uh, features about this. So Eric, you weren't walking around just uh, flopping your PTS out for everybody to see. So, I mean, there's, there's obviously, uh, you know, an attraction from Meg to you, uh, but you kept all this stuff hidden. Uh, So, and this is actually to either one of you, like, like what did that look like initially? And then how did it start unpacking itself? Like it did because he, you're making it sound like he was a real winner, you know, right off the bat, but, but he's, he's not, I mean, he's a, he's obviously a great guy or you wouldn't have attached yourself to him. You're absolutely right. I mean, we fell in love pretty quickly and, um, I, his, he's got a great personality. He's a very giving person. Um, had a lot of the same characteristics that I have when it comes to helping other people. Obviously we're both first responders. We have that mindset and that, um, you know, that background. Um, He was a sweetheart. I mean, he was very romantic and very sweet and very thoughtful, um, but also didn't bullshit, which is something that I was attracted to. But obviously he had bouts of being an asshole and he still has bouts of being an asshole. But, um, <laughs> you know, we work through those things. So, yeah, I mean, he wasn't like, like a gem, but he definitely was, a. he was your gem. <laughs> he was, he was, he was yeah. my gem. Yes. Yeah. But, he might not be flawless. Yeah. But for me, I didn't see the outward appearance of what I had going on. Um, even before I met Meg, I had people that I worked with that were like, you're an asshole you know, you're, you get angry all the time or you're short tempered or you're irritable. And I was like, yeah, whatever. You're an asshole too. I mean, well, I think like so many of us in the community, the type A personality that we just, you know, we're fine. We don't need any help. And that's what I really did up until Meg, you know, said enough is enough as I just 
chalked it up to, I'm fine. I'm normal. I don't need help. I don't need to talk to anybody. It wasn't until after I got help, I could see, you know, the outward things about how I never fostered relationships because I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want people in close um, or just not really going out and doing anything, the, the isolation piece. And so like you talk about that point of going to get help, right? Like, can you go through both as a couple and individually, like, was there a catalyst or was it just, you know, over time you finally kind of broke down into the sense of like, I know I need to do it or all at one time, (laughs) (laughs) one big catalyst. Um, we ride motorcycles. It's one of our hobbies. Uh, and we were at a ride for the Patriots, which is in Fairfax, Virginia. Um, it's before rolling thunder back in the day. And they had a gentleman named Doc. He was a Navy corpsman. Of course, everybody that's a Navy corpsman is named Doc. Um, so Doc came and he was speaking about his uh, struggles. And Eric was actually in front of me. He shared his story and Eric turned around and he was bawling um, almost like a child. I, I don't know how to like, liken it to anything else. Um, he, just lo- he just let it go. And he's like, I need help. Uh, and I was like, great, this is awesome. So he actually ended up talking to Doc afterwards, got hooked up with the Wounded Warrior Program. They gave him um, like a certain number of sessions that he could go see a counselor. Um, no fault of Wounded Warrior. Uh, the individual, the, the counselor that got hooked up with her was not trained in PTSD treatment, not trained in prolonged exposure or CPT or CBT and was trying to reprogram him. So you can you can assume how that went. The No One Fights Alone podcast is excited to announce the launch of our new merchandise line. Now you can show your support for our mission by purchasing one of our hats, shirts, or hoodies. Our merchandise not only represents our brand and message, but also supports a great cause. A portion of all proceeds will go towards helping individuals and families affected by mental health. Wearing our merchandise not only spreads awareness for our podcast, but also serves as a reminder that no one has to fight alone. Join us in showing your support and spreading the message of hope and community by purchasing one of our No One Fights Alone items today from our website, nofapodcast.com, nofapodcast.com. So Eric, what's going through your mind when you're sitting here listening to him talk? I mean, what... what clearly you identified with something he said and said, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but that's my life or that's me or, you know, that happens so many. Can you, am I hitting something close there? Oh yeah. I mean, doc, doc talked about how, you know, the same symptoms, irritable, you know, angry, not sleeping. But then he talked about his big isolation piece and he talked about how one day he just couldn't take it anymore. And he went off the grid. He just, he just disappeared because he didn't want to be around anybody. He didn't want to be around his family. And it resonated with me because I didn't know. I, so many times I felt the same way, same way where I just wanted to disappear because I didn't want to be around anybody. And I just, you know, it's that silence. I wanted to get away from everything and just have silence because it's the noise in essence in my head that I couldn't get to stop if that makes sense. Oh, yes, absolutely makes sense. Uh, Meg, what, so if we, at the same moment this is happening, what's what's going on with you? Are you seeing this before it, it comes to fruition? Are you seeing the impact that it's having on him? Or are you in tune with the same, uh, you know, listening ears of Doc? 
Um, tell us, take us down that well, road a little bit. So like I had said, I'd been asking him to get help and go to counseling for probably a couple of years at this point. Um, but there, there needed to be something. And just like in this that we're, you know, dealing since first responder mental health and veteran mental health has really become less taboo and it's more talked about and less stigmatized. He needed to connect with someone or something to get him over that hump to realize that a, he's not alone. It's okay to not be okay. And see, it's, it's completely healthy to get help for your struggles. Um, so when that happened, I was very like, I was like, oh, thank you. You know, very grateful that it happened. And then unfortunately he went to the wrong person. Well, if we, if we, pa- I'd, I'd like to go down that road for a minute, but if we pause long enough just to let the listeners take a, if, if you don't mind, uh, opening up your marriage a little bit to, to the listeners and say, what, what did your marriage, what was your marriage looking like at that time? I mean, were you fighting a lot? Were you not fighting and, and, you know, isolating from each other or you, I mean, what, or were you getting along and you just see these glimpses of asshole show up at that point, you know, Meg was on the street. Um, I'm working my shift working to work. Patrol, not yeah. the street. Working patrol. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we weren't to make a living somehow. 24- you know, we weren't seeing <laughs> each other seven up. days a week. Um, there was days that we wouldn't see each other. So and he was working 24. So there was a lot of so passing I, in the night. Yeah. So I don't think all of the behaviors were being seen as much once Meg came off patrol. Um, and we were together more often. And I don't think back then we really had too many disagreements other than if something triggered me and I was, you know, angry, Eric came out. Cause there were times that Meg literally had to restrain me from getting in a physical altercation. And as we like to call when the switch got flipped, I, she says I had a different appearance. The look oh, in yeah. my eyes was different. And I could tell when it happened that, you know, I was a different person. I was ready for the altercation. You know, um, I, I think from my perspective is that he had these bouts and I don't want to say I'm, I made excuses, but I understood why he was responding and reacting the way that he was. Um, I, I don't think it's right, you know, to, how do I, how do I usually say this when it comes to something, you know, sometimes you have to call someone out for their behavior and say, Hey, you got to do something about this. Um, you can get help. You can get better. Um, with the whole, like I would walk on eggshells. Um, it wasn't really until his, suicide attempt in 2017, where our marriage really started to struggle. You know, you bring up a valuable point there, Austin. We've talked about this many times that uh, uh, understanding can look a lot like uh, just passive permission. Um, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because there is a there's a valuable point here to to I think for the listeners that that, uh, you know, you, we're not giving permission for bad behavior, but we are being understanding of being in a bad place. And I think, you know, that's come up, it's come up many times, uh, that, that we've talked about that. Don't you think Austin? Yeah. It's also empathy, right? Like there, there's a difference in being in the same career field in the first responder field and, and understanding that there are things that go on, um, that, you know, you have a better understanding of than somebody who isn't right. If your spouse isn't in 
that same field, they may not be able to communicate in the same way. There's been many times in our marriage where I've looked at him and said, I don't like being around you. And it's not to be mean. It's to let him know, like he would go through treatment and say he's good and stop treatment. And then he would go back to treatment and he'd get better. And then he would stop treatment or it wasn't on a consistent basis. And so when he was in between those therapy sessions and therapy, um, treatment uh, modalities, um, he would go back down and it would, it would rear its ugly head again, but there is no excuse for that. Like, you know, you can be a better person. Um, I understand that you have, uh, you know, stuff going on and struggles. We all do, but it doesn't give you the right to be an asshole. I think that's so valuable. Again, we're kind of, we're kind of circling around the same point that I think it's so valuable to, to, to make sure that that's an understood point or possibly even boundary, if you will, to say, Hey, I'm, I'm not going to let you act this way around me. Go, go get your shit squared away or, or whatever that may or may not look like in communication within your marriage or others marriages out there. Um, but oftentimes the silent treatment begins to feel like, well, I'm just giving this person permission to act however they want. And, the reality is, uh, you know, there's, there's some things that need to be communicated there, which that's where, that's where you're taking this portion of the conversation. Okay. So let's get us back on track. Thanks for letting me dive in there a little bit. So, so I'm gonna pick this back up, uh, suicide attempt. Uh, can you tell us, can we talk about that or do we want to stay away from that? Of course. Okay. Yeah. We're pretty much open book. So yeah. ask away. So, um, like Meg said, 2016 is when I heard doc speak. And I realized, okay, I need to talk to somebody. Um, I saw the therapist through Wounded Warrior Project, which helped a little bit, but didn't help all that much. And that ended towards the end of the year in uh, 20, uh, 2016. Right at the beginning of 2017, we were at a Christmas party. And I had been struggling. Uh, things had been building up. I hadn't been talking to Meg, wasn't going to therapy. And we were at the party and simple disagreement between a husband and wife, anybody in a relationship. And at that point, my cup ran over and I was checking out. Yeah, it was um, a very sad experience. Um, and this actually is where I ended this whole night that this happened when he went MIA for about 12 hours is how I ended up with my post-traumatic stress. Um, so he left the house. I wouldn't get in the car with him because like, like he said before, I've seen his body change, his eyes changed, his, his voice even changed. It wasn't Eric. That wasn't my husband. And I wouldn't get in the car with him because, um, like many times they're doing reckless behaviors because they just, they're, you know, I don't want to say they're having suicidal ideations or they just don't care, you know, at that point in time, if they're alive or dead. And, um, he left, um, outside of the house and, uh, he, um, I got a friend to drive me home, uh, to the house and Eric had made a comment to our friend, tell Meg, she's not going to have to deal with my demons anymore. And to you and I understanding this, this mental health world, that is a suicidal statement to me without being, I'm going to go kill myself. Um, being in the police world, dealing with folks that are, you know, having suicidal ideations or actively suicidal with a plan, I knew what that meant. Um, so actually, when we, when I was being driven home, the guy that I was with, his name was Tim, our friend, I said, I'm not going inside my house. 
And he goes, well, why not? And I said, because I don't want to find my husband dead. And um, Eric had dropped off my car, picked up his car, but I still didn't know like what he, my whole, plus I had a couple drinks in me. I mean, I wasn't drunk, but I just, you know, I had some, some um, alcohol in my system. So I probably wasn't thinking a hundred percent, but I said, I'm not going in the house. You have to search my house. I don't want to find my husband dead. And looking back, it's a very selfish thing. I asked for that guy to do because if he were in there, he would have been in there. It would have been affecting him. But at that moment, that was what I was doing to survive myself. Um, and then I went into the house. They, our friends started looking for him. He turned his phone off. He went dark. Uh, so he has been around me and the, the, uh, police department long enough to know that when you turn your phone off, they can't ping it to find you. Um, and he was gone for about 12 hours. I had no idea where he was in those 12 hours. I had to, uh, call our local police department and tell them that he was missing, had a pistol with him, has PTSD, was suicidal. Um, but they wouldn't enter him into the system as critical missing because he didn't actually make the statement that he was going to kill himself. So, uh, I had a report of missing, um, later I, I kept calling and texting, but just like on an iPhone, you know, um, if you, we both have iPhones, so it's, it would be a blue messaging. Well, it wasn't, it was green and then it was going right to voicemail. So I knew he had turned his phone off and, um, basically in the next morning he picked up the phone one time, um, he picked it up and he, again, it was like talking to someone that was back in their adolescent years, he was just crying and sobbing and almost childlike again. And he's like, can I come home? And I was like, yes, yes, you can come home, you know? And he ended up coming home. And uh, of course, then we had to call the police back and get him taken out, you know, and removed from the system as missing and so on and so forth. Um, made a safety plan. Um, and then the next day we were back in his good therapist who was actually trained for PTSD treatment, her, her office the next day. Let's pause for a second and back up here because this, this was an enormously impactful event for you as well. What, what kind of emotions I, I'm sure by this time now you've circled back and, and dissected that day a little bit or that night, what's running through, you know, besides the obvious fears, you know, what, what's, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you experiencing? I did not expect my husband to come home alive. Um, I had visions of people coming to my door to give me um, death notification, which I've done. I can't tell you how many times myself. Uh, visions of that. Um, things started popping in my head. Uh, what am I going to do about a funeral? How am I going to pay for the house? I know it's just random weird stuff, but your mind and your body goes into a different place when you're in survival mode. Um, but I fully did not expect my husband to come home in the morning. I had accepted that night that he was dead and I had to prep myself for what was going to happen next. Luckily that didn't happen. Oh, so <clears throat> that night, um, the thought wasn't that I wanted to kill myself or that I wanted to hurt myself. The thought process was what was going through my head is, as I called them the demons because the hamster wheel would just never stop. So I was always wrestling with what was going on there. And I just got to a point that I was, I was worn out. I couldn't, 
I didn't, I didn't feel like fighting anymore. <clears throat> it's okay. Take your time. I could see the toll it was taking on her. And I didn't want to keep doing that. Did that make sense? I was just, I was done hurting me and I was done the hurt for her. Um, sorry. She always gets me when we talk about it. Um, don't apologize at all. This, this uh, is real life. This, and this is the beautiful part because I we're know. sitting here, you know, five years later talking about this and this will help many oh, other people. So take your time. So, um, I never knew the impact that that night had to Meg until probably four months later, we were invited to go to the um, Virginia Law Enforcement um, Post Critical Incident Seminar, yeah, PCIS. PCIS. And one of the things they do is they have everybody sit around the table and they go around and have you share your story if you want to. Um, they're very smart. I will, I will admit they're very smart sneaky. the way they set it, sneaky the way they set it up. But they had Meg share her story before me. And she shared what happened that night. And was the first time that I heard what she went through. And it was the first time I shared and truly realized that we weren't here at the seminar, the post-critical incident seminar for him. We were here for both of us. And that's really when it clicked in my brain. Like that was a traumatic incident for me, a very traumatic incident. And he had never heard it because everything was not saying this to be like, oh, it wasn't about me, but everything was so focused on him. It was his suicide, his PTSD, his struggles. And that right there really, as time went on, was the catalyst for us wanting to go out and speak about married with PTSD. Because as Meg says, the spouse is always the forgotten one. You know, I had a bunch of people rally around me to get me help for what was going on, but no one was rallying around Meg. So, so this is so great. So, so just so I could back up and, and allow the listeners the opportunity, I don't, I don't want to miss a gap here because we went from PCIS to speaking about something huge happened <laughs> at PCIS to your marriage. I mean, I mean, obviously it happened to you individually. I'm hearing that, but, uh, if, if we can maybe just take a peek into the window of your marriage again, what, what happened, what that, that type of event is normally a make or break event. Like it's my marriage is not going to make it through. I realized that this is, you know, I, but somehow this solidified your marriage. Is that, a, is that fair? I, I definitely think it made us stronger um at, at that moment um for us i i wasn't thinking about divorce at that point in time in our marriage um that comes later <laughs> uh but i just wanted him again i wanted him to get healthy i wanted him to be healthy because i knew if he wasn't healthy we couldn't be healthy um again like that was huge and for him to see how it affected me I think makes made him more, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Makes him want to work harder to make himself better because he wanted me to 
be better or feel better and not treat me the way he had been treating me. If that makes sense. It does make sense. Was there a component in there that you realized you're not well either? No, I didn't realize that for a good two years. Wow. And that's part of that's That's part of the more of the okay, story. I'm getting ahead here. So, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So let, let's keep going here. Um, so we go through PCIS and like I said, Eric was going through different modalities of treatment for PTSD. Um, he did prolonged exposure, um, CPT, CBT. We we're, I think we were doing couples counseling here and there and that I was doing my own stuff as I live with depression and anxiety. Um, so, but Austin, did you want to say something? No, sorry. sorry. I had to adjust my mic there. No, you're good. <laughs> okay. Um, so it continued on and he was getting help and he would get better. And then sometimes he wouldn't do treatment. He wouldn't, he would get worse. And like I said before, it was, you need to stay in treatment because if not, you know, so on and so forth. Well, then he got really well. Um, Eric's well, Eric got healthy and through those two years after his suicide attempt, I was the helicopter wife. I was the one 24 seven monitoring his behaviors, his emotions, his outbreaks. I was the one walking on eggshells, uh, making sure that he didn't beat someone up, uh, that he didn't get in a road rage incident. Um, explaining to people his issues, uh, making I don't want to say making excuses, like I said before, but it, trying to get them to understand why he's acting the way he is, although it's not okay a lot of times, but there's a reason for it, or there's a, you know, there's something traumatic happened to him and this is what trauma does to people. Uh, but I was so hyper-focused on him. I lost myself. I gained like 50 pounds, over 50 pounds. Um, I wasn't taking care of myself at all. I barely went to treatment because 24 seven, hundred percent was about my husband. Like I said, I was the helicopter wife, but I was also the silent warrior, meaning I didn't say much. I wanted him to get healthy. Once he got healthy, my mind and body completely crashed, like hit rock, almost hit rock bottom. I had suicidal ideations. I couldn't function. Um, physically or mentally. Uh, I was in a specialty unit, so I could make my own work days and hours. Uh, and if I didn't want to, if I didn't feel good, I'd come in and I'd be like, all right, you know, I'm not coming in today. There was no issues with staffing or anything like that. My, my supervisor, uh, I don't want to say he wasn't paying attention, but I don't think he picked up on it, which a lot of times supervisors don't pick up on when people are calling in sick and dealing with stuff. Uh, but I, uh, I couldn't, I wouldn't get out of bed for days. Um, I would make plans and break them every single time I made plans to go see people. So I was isolating. Uh, I didn't even take a shower for days at, at a time because to do something so minimal that people think is like, Ooh, gross. You didn't take a shower. It took so much energy and effort to do, uh, to get out of the bed, to go take a shower. I mean, he would call me and be like, did you take a shower yet? And I'd be like, no. He goes, Meg, you need to go take a shower. And that was kind of like the baby steps of getting me out of my depression, but it didn't work. Um, you know, and it, it kept my anxiety and my depression. My depression was so severe. Um, when, uh, one day he came up and I was just crying in the fetal position and he knew that was, I, that I needed some really serious help. And, um, like I said, he was healthy 
And once he got there, like my body just knew and my mind knew, like you've been doing this and sustaining this for so long that you can't do it anymore. It, you know, Meg says for so long, you know, that's, she just gave you a rundown of three years of, of what was going on because my suicide attempt was January 7th, 2017. Um, I spent all of 2017 or we did me going through different uh, therapy methods. And then in 2018 is when Meg's department did a first responder or law enforcement um, suicide prevention campaign. And we both talked and shared our story. And I think that was the beginning of us realizing that what we went through would be beneficial for, beneficial for others. But while we were doing that, we were both kind of, it was kind of um, therapeutic for both of us to do that. And then that led into 2019 with having um, people want us to come talk and present. It was 2020 when I was in a really good place. You know, I'd been through a bunch of therapy. Denny, my service dog, was paired up with me at the end of 2018. Um, things were going really well. But 2020 rolled around. COVID and everything else is when Meg just, she hit rock bottom. And that's actually when um, I realized I, well, I got diagnosed with moderate PTSD and it was from the night that Eric went missing. Um, and basically what it came down to is that I had uh, come to, you know, come to the realization that he wasn't, he was never coming home. So like I said before, it was a very traumatic incident. I started having nightmares about him. I started isolating from him, which I didn't realize until later because I didn't want to be around him because it was a trigger. So my husband ended up being a PTSD trigger for me, which is horrible. If you think about it, like absolutely horrible. Sometimes Walmart's a trigger for somebody, but to have someone that you love very much or you're in love with be your trigger, it was debilitating. I would go to bed at like six at night because I didn't want to be around him. If he was like, especially if he was in a bad mood, that would trigger my PTSD or one of his episodes, like his anger episodes would trigger my PTSD. And I would literally just shut down and he didn't understand it. Um, and obviously we really didn't understand it until you're on the other side of it. Um, but yeah, I mean, everything, he, he was my trigger and, uh, I, I don't know how else to emphasize that how sad and tolling that was. So was this a constant or was this more intermittent to where you, I don't want to say you didn't want to be around him, but the trigger word of him being around you, uh, just for the listeners to describe a, a good picture setting as to what you're describing. Uh, were there times where you did enjoy being around him? Yeah, that wasn't a, like, it wasn't a 24 seven thing. Um, you know, but again, I was still dealing with severe depression at the same time. We would still do stuff together as a couple. We were still, you know, I, I loved him, you know, like it wasn't like I couldn't be around him 24 seven. It was mostly when he acted out or had episodes where he, his PTSD flared and then that would trigger me. And this was a good six to eight months before I actually went and got inpatient treatment. I think COVID 2020, I chalked a lot of what I was seeing with Meg for the simple fact it was COVID. You know, everything was kind of isolating. Um, Meg was working from home. And so I was kind of like, okay, well, maybe she's just a little depressed, a little down because she's not getting any, you know, any interaction with anybody. Um, and with my PTSD, 
like we've always said, there's no magic pill. There's, you know, no magic potion that makes it all go away. I still struggle to this day with it, you know, but nowhere where it used to be. But during that time frame, if I had a bad day, a bad episode, it would, you know, take its toll on her. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, I want to say September of 2020. So I actually went through prolonged exposure, which if you know anything about, which I'm sure the two of you do, is not a fun uh, way of treatment, but it does work. Um, I did that before I went inpatient. Did you find it beneficial though? That's because it's extremely oh, yeah. difficult. Yeah, it's tough. It's one of the tougher methods uh, to do, but I mean, the fact that you're getting treatment is important, you know? So my, uh, my counselor was a, is a doctor of psychology, so she was a psychologist and it was very hard for me to do prolonged exposure because she didn't want me to expose myself to Eric when he was having these things or it, so it was hard to do the, the exposure piece, um, if that makes sense. So we really focused on the night where he was MIA. Yeah. Prolonged exposure was the second modality of treatment I did. And I always tell people it sucked while I was going through it, totally but works. afterwards, it, by far the best treatment I've ever done. At this time, we would like to extend our sincere gratitude to the sponsors of this podcast, Chateau Health and Wellness. We truly appreciate their unwavering support in our mission to raise awareness and provide valuable resources for those struggling with PTSD and mental health issues. For many first responders, the daily stressors and traumatic experiences they encounter on the job can take a heavy toll on their mental health. It is often difficult for them to seek help or even acknowledge that they may be struggling. That's why organizations like Chateau Health and Wellness are so important. They specialize in providing tailored treatment plans for first responders, recognizing the unique challenges they face and offering specialized therapy for PTSD and mental health issues. By partnering with Chateau Health and Wellness, we hope to not only raise awareness about the importance of mental health and first responders, but also encourage those who may be struggling to seek help and support. We believe that by prioritizing our mental well-being, first responders can better serve and protect our communities. Uh, so we go to treatment, uh, and yep. and what happens? What happens there? And then when are there any aha moments or revelations to treatment for you, Meg? Um, I think the biggest thing that I got out of treatment was focusing on myself, realizing that I have to do this. Nobody else can help. Like, you know, I have to make that determination and that decision to get healthy. Um, being away from work was amazing. Um, I mean, I love my job. I, I love my job being away from Eric was hard, but we had a codependency issue on top of things. So working through that at treatment was fabulous. Um, you know, just ha being able to focus on myself for, geez, it was like 13 hours a day um, that we were doing work with ourselves in groups and doing all that kind of stuff and not having to worry about paying a bill, talking to someone on, on, you know, your cell phone, looking on Facebook to see, you know, what kind of crap is going on in the world. You know, there were no TVs, it, it, you know, you were kind of, you were isolated, which I really, you know, looking back, I, I appreciate, I became more present. 
So it was very good for me to go away. I think this is uh, I think this is really fascinating concept here, the codependency piece, because this is again so similar to a story we had on of a couple that came on before. She she gave everything she had to take care of her husband, PTSD. I know there's a there's so many different uniquenesses of this, but the overall the overarching story of of this codependency of I'm here to make you better. And I'm going to forego my own health is such, uh, such a great uh, testament to passing on a message of health and wellness to taking care of yourself. So we come out of treatment, we start working on a marriage. Uh, take us just take us on that little road trip right there. Um, it took me a while to get better. Uh, you know, I still had depression that I was dealing with, so I was in treatment. I was going to counseling pretty much weekly. We were doing, adding in, um, you know, couples counseling as well to be able to discuss things, like I said, in in an unbiased environment. Well, Um, that's too where we realized that we both had codependency because when Meg went away uh, for treatment, when she went inpatient, that was the first time we'd been apart for more than probably a day or two because of work. mm -hmm. Um, Other than that, we were together all the time. Um, But the roles had reversed leading up to her going inpatient. And so couples therapy for her after she got out, that was an eye opener, I think, to both of us, just how codependent we we had been. That makes sense. And and I want to spend a lot of time on Meg, so I'm going to try and leave this. Okay. The, um, give us some key points, right? Because we talked about it before and like there was obviously some ones we both knew are major points, but like give the listeners some key points that you have learned throughout your marriage that have worked. And then also, you know, that you've seen work with other people. And then I want to jump into the nonprofit side because you guys have a hell of a mission and I want to make sure that people hear it. Thank you. I think that, you know, as we were talking before the communications piece, um, you have to talk to your spouse. You have to know that you can be vulnerable and honest. Um, because if you're not, it's the communications isn't going to work. Um, I, I, I really think that was the, the big one for us. And, you know, uh, how, how is it? The, uh, the I statements. The, yeah. I feel, I feel, um, and not making it sound like it's a, um, you did this, right. An attack on the other person or blaming your behavior or what you did, you know, on somebody else or something else. It was, you know, taking the ownership of, you know, what I was doing or her taking the ownership of what she was doing. And then the other, the other big thing was with the communications is realizing that we both have um, things in our past that were catalysts um, to, you know, some of our struggles. Well, and I think I said this before, but I didn't know a lot about his background um, and what happened to him in the military, but I also didn't know what, what his childhood trauma was. And he had been abused multiple ways um, in his childhood. And that affects you late. Everything starts in childhood, you know, aces, the whole aces thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, it messes you up later on life. Uh, so having, hearing all of this made me understand better of why he responds that way or why things trigger him in a certain way. And now we're able to be like, what you did triggered me and this is why, and this is how I felt. And to be able to be completely honest with your spouse like that and not be afraid to share that information, that has really helped our marriage. Um, because now we can learn and move forward from doing those behaviors or those things that the other person is affected by. 
couples counseling, hands down the best thing I, I can highly suggest. Go through your EAP, whatever you need to do, go through your insurance. There's no like super guru. Find someone that clicks with you guys. Um, he would get mad at the couples counselor because she was always on my side, but no, I'm just kidding. But you know, it, it's a, she'll check both of you like they, or he or she should check both of you and be like, Hey, this is, this is not appropriate. Or this isn't, you know, what, how do you think that, you know, she felt when this happened and putting yourself in the other person's shoes, even though you might be a right fighter, it's not about being right. It's about how your loved one feels and how you're making them feel. And and we talked about it before also is we're fortunate. We're both first responders. We both see the same crap. Um, but so many first responders, their spouse isn't a fellow first responder. And we're all good at wanting to hide the things that are bothering us from the job because we don't want to, you know, share Upset. doom and gloom, yeah. you know, the, the gore that we see. Protect your wife. Yeah, protect your spouse. Um, but as Meg says, you know, you have to give your spouse the Disney version because your spouse is going to see when you're struggling. They they're know gonna, it. Yeah. They're going to be able to tell when something's bothering you. So by giving them the Disney version, they can say, okay, I understand you had a really crappy day. Let's talk about it a little bit. Let's get some of it out instead of harboring it all inside and letting it build. It's okay to share with your spouse. Believe me. Most, and, and you know, when I say spouse, I'm talking, and now I'm talking about, you know, a man, woman situation. Typically the spouses aren't first responders but some of them are nurses and they've given birth. So they have dealt with a lot of things that you probably think that they can't deal with the, you know, the gory and maybe they want to know the gory stuff. You don't know that, but just sharing like, like today I was having a rough morning and I said, please excuse me, give me some grace. I'm having a rough morning. And just being able to have that conversation instead of being me being a snippy butthead towards him and him being like, well, what did I do? You know, it's just being able to share and, and, and like communication obviously is always key. And you always hear about on Oprah and everybody else, everywhere else. You know, there's a significant amount of self-awareness that's involved in that as well. I mean, it just, just yes. knowing this is the space that I'm taking up right here, which is negative or uh, grouchy or asshole-ish or, you know, just being that self-aware that that takes a lot as well. I mean, you, you've, this is so great, such a great conversation. And I'd love to keep, keep going down this road. I just, I find it fascinating, but let's transition. Let's transition here a little bit to, uh, to now your passion of this, this great organization that you've built, uh, Meg, let's tell, tell the listeners about what you're doing now. All right. So, uh, it kind of happened organically after his suicide attempt in like 2018. Um, I've always been doing charity work and volunteer work for law enforcement, first responders and military um, organizations and charities and nonprofits. Uh, so I actually, how it really like initially started was because I found out um, at work from a victim advocate that a uh, rape victim, a female, had to go home in a pair of scrubs without any undergarments from her SANE exam, where they take the clothing typically as evidentiary purposes. So she had to go home in a pair of scrubs with no underwear, no you know, bra, no nothing, no, nothing with dignity. And I said, well, this is never going to happen again. And it's not the, to the fault of the hospital. Um, you know, The hospital has funding for certain things, but these would be considered extras. So we started with a drive for clothing for these victims of abuse, men, women, and children. 
Um, and then we found, uh, if you remember the Pulse nightclub shooting a couple months after that, or actually a month after that, who is now one of our good friends, Omar, Omar Del- Delgado, he was one of the first responders to respond and was inside the Pulse nightclub um, for hours. And he ended up with severe PTSD. And they were firing him. He didn't work for Orlando. He worked for a small town outside of Orlando. And they were firing him at the end of the year because his PTSD was so severe that he couldn't be a police officer anymore. And at the time, Florida's workman's comp um, situation did not cover PTSD as a, as a method of medically retiring. So he was getting fired. And he did a USA, um, USA Today or US, yeah, USA Today uh, article and said, my family and I are not going to have a good Christmas this year because I'm getting fired. So um, let's just say we're very uh, good at what we do. And we found him and befriended him and raised enough money to provide him and his children and his wife and himself with, with Christmas. Flew down and delivered it to him. And then that kind of took our nonprofit making everything good off. And then coming into the mental health advocacy uh, world, finding out that officers and veterans, um, you know, what is the, the, the normal public is what 40, 60% paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as first responders and veterans, we, we don't get a a great paycheck compared to other people. And people were struggling to get to mental health inpatient treatment because typically it's like, Hey, I need a ticket in two days. This person is struggling or suicidal. They need to go now. And the ticket's like 600 plus dollars just for one way. Um, and that has really become our major initiative is to provide transportation to and from mental health treatment. And just in the last 90 days, we've sent over a dozen first responders and or veterans because we don't really talk about, you know, statistics in that sense, um, the individual um, identities and stuff to first to to help to mental health treatment. So, and uh, we need funding, I'll be honest. We're a very small nonprofit. Um, we have very great friends and family and folks that believe in us and in, in our area, but we're taking care of um, the whole nation when it comes to this. Uh, we're hooked up with numerous um, different uh, facilities and groups and organizations. And literally you call me and we get that plane ticket within you know, the next 12 hours, depending on what when it's needed. and we don't just do that. Um, like recently there was a Virginia state trooper whose daughter was, mm. uh, injured severely in a, in an accident, um, ended up taking, was, she's six years old. She was playing in the back of his pickup truck with the windows down and had, um, a ratchet, those, strap. a ratchet strap and like twisted it around her legs and was flying it out the window. Well, it ended up going onto his drive shaft and mm. basically, oh, sorry, <laughs> basically, amputated, almost amputated both of her feet at six years old. Oh, my word. Um, And we raised $6,000 for his family, and they were able to put in an elevator for her, for her rehabilitation. So these are the things that we do. If there's a need, we find a need. Again, our major initiative is to fly people, um, first responders and veterans to mental health treatment. So you have a... uh... So, so I don't want to miss this. I don't want to miss this opportunity. So, so being a 501c3, a nonprofit, and you, you just yes. told the listeners funding, how do they find where to give money to you? 
What's the best, sure. what's the best um, way or ways uh, to get a hold of you to say, hey, I want to donate to this fantastic organization? I love our Facebook page because we post more stuff on what we've done and who we've helped on there. So to find out exactly like even the smallest things that we do, because um, we also help the local community. Uh, that's the best way to see what we're doing. And, um, typically we have specific fundraisers that we're doing for, for specific people or things. And that's a good way to donate specifically for that, um, individual initiative, but you can go to our website, making everything and you can donate. Uh, there's a, a, a donate link. Uh, you can Venmo and the Venmo and PayPal are the same. It's at M E G O R G. So Meg org. You can donate that way. Um, you know, any way you can reach out, you can write a check. Our address is on the website. I'll take your money. Anyhow, you know, <laughs> anyhow you want to get it to me. As you should, as you should. And and that's where I have to step in and say, you know, everything that you have spoken about with the plane flights and these people that are in emergency, I mean, it's exact, it's hundred percent truth, right? Like I, I am a person that has made that call to you before uh, in those dire situations. And it's, it's never a second guess from you. And you pick the phone up right when you can. And you say, yeah, no problem. What, what do we need to do? And that's amazing. Like, I'm sorry, but like a lot of people say they're here to help. And when it's put up or shut up time, right? Like the, the phone goes to voicemail multiple times. And so for anyone that's listening, this is an organization that does deserve all of our help because it is doing great work. Thank you. Thank you. Well, you know, with, with the flights, we just saw that it was uh, first thing first responders do. They come up with an excuse why they can't go. Yeah. Brad's one and of that's, them. That's what led to the, hey, we'll get you there. 100%. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, and I would love to love to keep going. But but to close this out, I, I want to I circle back to give you all, you, you all have so much wisdom. Uh, and being national presenters, you you tell your stories. As we kind of close out here, uh, why don't you leave us with a couple nuggets of wisdom for our listeners? If they uh, if they maybe they're they, maybe they're in a dark place, maybe their marriage is not doing well, uh, maybe their intimate or close personal relationships are not doing well. What are some of the things that you would leave on the table for our listeners as we kind of wrap this up? I'll let you go first. Oh. Um... As you, you hear it now, I'm glad it's taken off, is uh, it's okay to not be okay is, uh, is something everybody needs to realize. I think that everybody has some sort of struggle inside they're dealing with, you know, whether it's PTSD, some sort of addiction or whatever it is. So it's okay to not be okay and really get help. Go talk to somebody. Don't be afraid. Um, don't worry about the stigma. You know, so many people I know I did, that was the, the roadblock. And being a spouse um, in this situation, you know, you're not alone. There are many other spouses that are going through this too. You have a right to advocate for yourself and to be happy yourself. Um, Self-care is very, very important when you're in these situations. Cause you, as you saw with me, I wasn't taking care of myself and I, and I, and I got really, really bad. I was in a very, very dark place. Um, the spouses aren't alone. There are, there are, um, you know, places for you to get help or support groups. Uh, I think that needs to, uh, develop a little bit more in my opinion. Um, but you know, and you, and you can set non-negotiables, 
with your husband or your spouse. And I've had to do that. So don't be afraid, like I said, to be an advocate for yourself and your children and your marriage. Such great wisdom. Meg, Eric, thank you so much for your vulnerability, your wisdom, and your passion to, uh, to help others. We really appreciate you coming on. You're thank welcome. You. And you're welcome for us twinning. Twinning and that beard. I don't think we referenced how good looking that beard is over there. That's legit. Thank you. like a Santa now. Thank you. You know, the one thing we didn't <laughs> talk about, and I have to bring it up. Oh, God. Because this is, I only get to do this once. Once. All right, all right, all right. So when we first started doing, uh, when we took care of um, Omar Omar, and the, the individual before that with their sand exam and no clothes, we were not officially a nonprofit. It was after taking care of Omar, a good friend of ours said, you know, you guys really should brand yourself and become, you know, a true 501c3. So we did, and she was doing, she does marketing. And she's the one that came up with our awesome logo. Right. And she came up with making everything good. And Meg looked at me and she goes, I don't get this. Where, what is this making everything good? And I was like, you're so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> she just couldn't get the correlation that it's Meg. Well, she did a flyer for us and put making everything good presents at the top. And I'm like, who's making everything good? Like it didn't make sense to me. And then I was like, Oh, <laughs> so great. But. Obviously Meg, you're doing great things. Eric, you're doing great things. Thank you guys so much. Chateau health and wellness is a 16 bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's first responder resiliency program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Health and Wellness is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information or to speak to a representative, go to ChateauRecovery.com or call 888-507-5031.